Welcome down to my nine-foot homemade oak bar. Pour yourself a cold one. You are listening to Bucks in the Basement. My name's Chris, and Craig here is the biggest Pirates fan you'll ever meet. Let's talk Pirates baseball now. Welcome to Bucks in the Basement. Now I see the changes in this town. They change, they say, one thing but then the next day. fans you are listening to bucks in the basement for fans by fans all pittsburgh pirates baseball 30 minutes of bucks as always my name is craig and his name is still chris but unfortunately chris's name has showed up on the il one of the hardest working men that i know in podcasting today i was out there for the network I did a couple Oktoberfests, I know, putting in the hard work, uh, but came down with something beforehand, fought through it, um, and then just basically ended up on the shelf last minute today. So no velvety tones of Chris Lanuti here. Uh, nobody to keep my fan brain you know, on track, nobody to keep me from, you know, going completely off the ledge. Could be good, could be bad. We'll see what we can get into today. But before we get started, I wanted to thank uh, our sponsors, our partners once again. Uh, Shop Yins, uh, always rocking the Yins hat out there anywhere I go. I know I've said I'm not the snapback man, the flat bill, you know, how it's. I am usually should be like the old man hat. But you know what? I make it look good when I'm out there, and it's because of the Yin's products. Three dynasties, one brand, Yin's, and that's Y-I-N-Z-Z. Finally, one brand to rep all the black and gold. Follow at Shop Yin's for your merch drops and getaways. Order online at shopyins.com. Emphasis once again on those two Z's in Yin's. High-quality comfort, lightweight materials. A new modern look for the black and gold made for Yins by a Yinzer. I've hung out with Taylor, great guy, always out there having fun. You've probably seen me out there on social media rocking the Yins hat, uh, sometimes with the Pirates jersey, usually my lasting's millage, rocking it with the, the Steeler jersey, often uh, is either the, the Brett Kiesel, depending on how long my beard is, uh, or, you know, Heath Miller. Uh, just got to love the tight ends, the guys that, you know, take the middle of the field over. So with our Pittsburgh Pirates now, there's there's a lot to get into here. And one of the first bit of news here that dropped uh, had to do with a player that, you know, Chris and I have broken down and dedicated segments to, you know, several times. He, he was the man that... 
I believe if you go back, because, you know, we'll take the good and we'll take the bad of what we say. And, and I, I'll never shy away from that. Um, I believe I said I wasn't sure if I wanted to see Michael Chavis walk out of spring training, had a, had a very bad spring training uh, on the field. Like the energy, I know one of the games he was mic'd up down there and really brought a lot. And, and he did more possibly than what was expected for him. Uh, came out in his rookie year uh, and you know played very, very well. Uh, for the Boston Red Sox. And, and after that, I just kind of fell by the wayside. And it's not even really completely, you know, I don't know if it's like his fault or, or what it would be, but it just never could really put together after that. Uh, was up with the Red Sox uh, towards the end of last year. Uh, they were looking for you know, just a, an extra relief arm, somebody that we really hadn't had that long in Austin Davis, uh, make the trade over there to bring in Chavis. Didn't get a real good look at him, kind of got nicked up towards the end of the year, comes back, you know, makes the squad, and finds his way into a nice little uh, niche. And one of the things that I'm going to get to here a lot today is the things, and I don't know if it's it's blatant misinformation or it's just not, it's like a misunderstanding or, you know, maybe just the lack of knowledge of, you know, what positions a player has played, you know, throughout his career. It's not players that, you know, you're extremely familiar with. If you're a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, sometimes the Pirates may be, you know, the only team that you watch it and you can you know, have great discussions about that and not be able to talk about players outside of the Pirates or the Pirates systems. And sometimes it's just the major league club. Sometimes it's just the minor league club. And some people are fans of baseball itself, watch every game. And if you're not, it's fine. But I mean, there's, there's a great thing called Google. And when I don't know something before I would text it, before I would tweet it, before I would whatever put it out a Facebook post I would be able to look something up and people were saying you know Michael Chavis going over there and and taking it on and 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 you know playing first base and being comfortable with it what people don't understand is that Michael Chavis started 43 games in 2019 at first base like getting into the Red Sox system it was first base second base and kind of became a utility person uh, in you know 2020, the most games that uh, he started, he started at first base, 21 games. And then it kind of like went off from there, but he also wasn't getting into many games. So first base wasn't really a new position for him. And it was the position that he actually had, you know, the best performance at. And it wasn't like a great performance. I always look at, you know, the defensive run saved, you know, outs above average, different, you know, other metrics that, that could be out there. And the defensive run saved, you know, they hover around like zero to one. So he's average to just above average. Uh, any place where he was below average was when he was, you know, tasked with going into the outfield. But, you know, he was two, a plus two defensive runs saved in at first base this year for the Pirates, which, you know, based on know how the other players that were put in there a Josh Van Meter uh, a Yoshi Tsutsugo 
um, whoever it may be that that had to you know be wrangled over there. I mean, I know they were practicing Ben Gamble and and Kevin Newman there over at one point. And believe me, like Zach Collins, I don't even know if he has a hit at this point uh, with the Pirates, but definitely can can hold that down defensively. But the the biggest thing for for Michael Chavis was the bat was going to have to play. If he was going to be a part of this team, and even I think it was probably a couple weeks ago, maybe the last time Chris and I talked, might have been the time before that, I said I was more than fine with Chavis being used as a platoon, you know, off the bench or a utility player, mostly against left-handed pitchers. But it, it wasn't like he had to be on the team. It was more of I would be okay with him being on the team. Well, he is no longer a member of the major league team designated for assignment. Uh, and we'll get to Miguel Anjuar because a lot of people are going to want to talk about him as well. Kind of of the same ilk as a Michael Chavis. Uh, kind of balled out in the rookie year, had their best years then. Injuries, uh, performance hasn't been up to snuff, and, you know, ends up falling out of favor with the Yankees. I believe asked for a trade earlier on in the season, but at this point in time kind of gets, you know, designated for assignment out there on waivers, and it is a weird timing uh, with, you know, so few games to go in the season. Um, I know Gary was out there and having some real good conversations about it, talking about, you know, is this a time that Chavis could, you know, be put through and fall through waivers if he chooses his assignment. I know Graves was out there um, with Ethan Houlihan, and they were talking about the different, you know, how many years he had had. Could he reject, you know, that outright assignment? Would he reject it at this point in time? Not really sure, but for Chavis kind of came on strong at the beginning of the year. And I feel like, and this is going to be somewhat of a theme as well, is that once you start to like a player and, and once a player performs well, it gets a little bit harder to, you know, kind of shy away from them or to realize, you know, necessarily that they are struggling and I know for for Chavis, I mean, everybody was saying, you know, we need to get him some more plate appearances. We maybe need to get him some more bats. He had been performing well. Um, a OPS of 835 through April, April and March. Uh, in May, it's, you know, up to 827. In June, down to 531 is struggling a little bit. And then kind of just in July, August, and September, you know, letting it play out a little bit more and just seeing it, you know, drop uh, 652, 682. And then, you know, over his last 68 plate appearances, a 463 OPS. And yes, like he was playing and he was doing something that, you know, we didn't know was going to be asked of him at the beginning of the year, hoping that Yoshi would be able to fill that slot. At least that's what Ben Sherrington and the Pirates were hoping for, or at least filling it for most of the year until he performed well and was flipped, which 
I could see was probably the plan because of the one-year deal, even though the Pirates were looking for more of that, you know, two-year deal with Yoshi. Thank God they didn't. But, you know, it's it's a definitely something that Chavis was able to provide something that could have been a lot worse, kind of like what happened to the catching situation you know, after Roberto Perez is injured. And I really like Jason DeLay. I, I believe the kid is a ball player. Tyler Heineman, you know, great effort just, you know, behind there and is calling some pretty good games, doing their best. But but realistically, like, was Michael Chavis really an answer beyond a utility player? And that was kind of what we were figuring the ceiling was. And when you have other players like a, a Diego Castillo bringing up a G1 Bay, when you have Rodolfo Castro, you have these players that kind of fit you know, this similar mold and especially like a Castro as a, as a switch hitter, um, where would Michael Chavis really fit into the future? It stinks that it happened, you know, at this point in time and didn't go towards the end of the season, possibly a a non-tender candidate to begin with. Um, Where was the room at? But it's, it's over and done with now. I don't really want it to be, you know, Zach Collins. I don't want it to be Miguel Anjouar, who's played, I believe, less than 20 innings at first base, more of a third baseman slash outfielder utility player. I mean, you still have, you know, Mason Martin down there. Just a bad season overall in Indianapolis. Malcolm Nunez, you know, after the trade, continuing to come on. Would you want to see him get a shot? I mean, maybe it's just just really, really weird. Uh, Greg Allen was was also DFA'd at that point in time, you know, along with Chavis. Uh, Miguel Anjouar, as I mentioned, coming up there. And then Gaudet, because of Heineman going on, he's got a little concussion going on there. I shouldn't say a little concussion. He's, he's got a concussion issue. And he, you know, we need, we need more catchers. So, you know, he's kind of up here. It's not like really he had been performing. Everybody would say, well, where's Endy and where's Blake Sable? But, I mean, at this point in time, let's just – he was, I believe, on the taxi squad. Just kind of bring him over and, and just let him get in there and play a little bit. So, for Michael Chavis, I mean, I wish it could have been more. Uh, definitely showed some pop at times. Just a real big, you know, swing and miss kind of guy. Not really walking, not really getting on base. And, and overall, you know, a below replacement level player. I mean, I think it's like negative 0.3 war on baseball reference and negative 0.7 war on, on fan graphs, whichever one you use. So for me on that, it's, it's not really, it's, it's not really like a big loss. And for it to be Miguel Anjouar, I mean, maybe we're trying to get the things that we wanted to get two or three years ago by having Zach Collins and Miguel Anjouar on the same team. Uh, I, I see this as, you know, not what other people see it or have mentioned it as a lot of people are being almost cautionary as if this would be a, a Yoshi situation that, you know, Miguel Anjouar, uh, in arbitration this year is like $1.3 million. 
Michael Chavis was, I think it was 725 was the one year contract. So believe me, this, this, this was not, this was not about money whatsoever. Um, Miguel Anjouar will, will make more than, than Michael Chavis. Um, but that's neither here nor there for me. It's, it's, this is hopefully not the only move. Believe we, we need more veterans, but it's not a bad pickup either to have there as an option on the 40 men. And if you can find something with him, a man that, you know, was in the running for rookie of the year in the American league, uh, albeit four years ago, I'm not really too upset with it, but if it turns out to be nothing, then you pretty much gave up Chavis and Anjuar, who most people don't really think a whole lot of at this point in time. went on about a 15 minute rant there if you want to call it that about you know a Michael Chavis and a Miguel Anjouar and and a Yoshi Tsutsugo and before I get on to the next thing and really get into stuff and this is something that's going to lead into what I keep on calling kind of the theme of this episode and I always think of you know the old Family Guy episodes with uh, with Peter Griffin and you know how he would always say like this kind of grinds my gears. That's not really a grinds my gear things. It's it's just maybe it is. It's things that really kind of get to me and people that are saying you know we hope this isn't a Yoshi situation. Well, the same people that are saying we hope this isn't a Yoshi situation. Uh, looking back through. You know, social media and podcasts and everything, probably about 90% of the people that are hoping this isn't another Yoshi situation were the same people that were celebrating when the Pirates went out and signed Yoshi to the one year, $4 million contract. Yes, you know, some of them had the caveat that they also saw it as a risk, but a lot of them, you know, were happy to be able to use their memes again. The Yoshi memes, uh, all the goofy gifs, gifs. I can never get that right because I'm an old man. But you can't say this better not be another Yoshi when you were in favor of Yoshi. I was beat down and beat down and beat down to the point where I was just like, fine, fine. I'll take Yoshi and I'm okay if it's Yoshi, but only if it's for one year. Uh, at Towards the end of the season, I went on you know the podcast I wrote I did a lot of other stuff I tweeted about how you know how poorly Yoshi performed towards the end of the season after he had been seen by even the likes of the Cubs and the Reds more than one time he wasn't performing well I didn't want him uh, Miguel Anduar guess what I, I'm not really so sure I want him either and I do see that fear. And if he is the answer and if he becomes quote unquote that Yoshi, that then we can cross that bridge when we get to it. I just don't think we need to go, you know, really that far just yet. Uh, just like we don't need to go as far as saying that the one knee approach 
is drastically worse than conventional catching. And I know that's kind of like, okay, Craig, you're coming out of like a little bit of left field here to a degree, but it's, it's where I'm going with the flow here. It was the Michael Chavis into the people that are upset about Anjuar and Yoshi. And it's going to the place where maybe it's just that we're not watching a very good professional major league and I will say major league because they, he is a professional catcher and they are professional catchers, you know, in Jason delay and Tyler Heineman. But maybe it's that they are a double, a triple, a professional catcher, as opposed to a major league catcher. And that's why these mistakes are being made. And it's not because of the one knee approach. I see, you know, I think it's like she gone, is on there and, and I, I read and I look at a lot of the different stuff and everything and it's just saying, you know, this is bad and it's just because it's not really working and, and look at this pass ball and look at this wild pitch and all this different stuff and it's only set up for framing and framing is stealing strikes and, and that's not all from the she gone. That, that's, you know, from a lot of the different stuff that's been out there. But when I am looking to see if something is working or not working, you know, kind of across the board, I look to the stats and I know that people will say, well, stats lie. And if you could look at something, you know, then it could tell you something that you're actually looking for it to happen. Well, I wasn't looking for, and I, I, and I'll say everything that's on here because the conventional setup is actually better in preventing wild pitches and pass balls per nine innings in the catchers that use it regularly as opposed to the catchers that always use the one knee setup or use the one knee setup i believe it is you know over 80 percent of the time and then there's the people who do you know kind of a hybrid approach which is a little bit of a mix of both and i wanted to just give you guys some numbers here and just to chew on and it probably won't change your mind You'll probably tweet and still complain about the one knee uh, versus the conventional setup. But if this can change your mind, maybe we'll try it. In the conventional setup catchers, they allowed 0.432 wild pitches or pass balls per nine innings. Catchers who only use the one knee approach or, you know, more than the 80% of the time they allowed 0.466 wild pitches or pass balls per nine innings. So it's like not really much of a difference whatsoever within, you know, the realm of everything. Like it's, it's slightly higher, but if you look at the guys that use the, you know, conventional and, and they, with the, the one knee and, and just kind of mix up their different approaches, they allow 0.56 wild pitches and pass balls per nine innings. So that's really, you know, where where the, the, the worst comes out of it is if you either just don't go straight conventional or you don't go completely one knee. But it also depends on the skill level of the catcher. And the other thing that I, I kind of would just want to leave you with is the people that are conventional receivers, they, they didn't just look at, you know, the pass balls and – and the wild pitches, which kind of seems to be where everything is going. 
Uh, they also looked at, you know, the rate of, you know, caught stealing. And for the people that use conventional receiving, it was 24.9% of base stealers were caught by catchers using, you know, the conventional method. The one knee setup, they caught 26.7% of base stealers. And then the hybrid one, once again, is is the worst with the 22.7%. So I don't want to say like it's an overarching, like one knee is horrible and conventional is better. But I also is more for me looking at, like I said, the skill level of the catcher as opposed to, you know, what kind of setup he has. You know, before this season, you know, Jason DeLay was down in double a and it's not saying that you know double a pitchers don't have some nasty stuff but once you make it to the major leagues i mean they all kind of have nasty stuff so asking him to to catch that much and those types of pitchers on a regular basis is a pretty tall order so i mean it's just a food for thought i really don't see it from watching games across the board as being a huge issue and and I definitely see it more in the Pirates games but I also watch more Pirates games so maybe that's why I see it more and so if you don't like it it probably didn't change your mind if you like it maybe you like it a little bit more and maybe if you're like me that's just kind of indifferent to it and seems to be that there has to be some sort of benefit to it if they're doing it I'll just kind of trust the you know analytics and I'll trust the stats and and those stats were from Baseball America, I believe it was JJ Cooper. So it's not like you know I was, <laughs> I I searched everywhere, and most of the stuff came out the same. And they did you know the most detailed study, and that was from last year. So it's not like this is you know some old stuff, but you know people probably are still not going to like it, and some people are. <laughs> painted myself into a corner here by ranting and raving too much about Michael Chavis, Miguel Anjuar, Yoshi, and the the one knee setup that everybody seems to hate so much. So I'm going to try to get through these, these last two that I had lined up uh, as quickly as I possibly can. And, and for one is Will Crow. And don't get me wrong, people. Will Crow's arm is possibly about to fall off. He has pitched more, and I know that last year he was, you know, the most reliable starter. And by most reliable, it was most innings, most starts. Might not have been the best, but was the most reliable. And so he kind of did what Michael Chavis, or of that ilk, Michael Chavis' ilk, what he did, which was that he, you know, said, I will, I will accept and I will, I will take this, this reliever role. And, and I will embrace it. And for the first two months of the season, a 1.01 whip. And that is, you know, 
kind of unbelievable because nobody saw that coming. I didn't see that. I mean, it's it's hard to believe. And, and that's through the first 30.2 innings of the season. So that's not like really a completely small sample size for a reliever. I mean, he just had people, you know, didn't know whether they were coming and going and was just absolutely awesome. But a lot of people are thinking that Will Crow is just bad because his arm is about to fall off. But it's almost like the Michael Chavis thing where he was just like really so good at the beginning of the season and was so much better than, you know, his counterparts or anybody else that you were going to put in in the first base spot or first base position that it almost looked better than it was as the season continued. Believe me, Michael Chavis, I I put out the numbers. He was hitting very well at the beginning of the season. Will Crow was pitching unbelievably well at the beginning of the season but this isn't a really a new phenomenon as to what's been happening with will crow and as you know chris and i usually go back to that whip and and we look at it and will crow beyond you know those first two months of the season month and a half the 30.2 innings from june 1st to july 31st so the next two months, when his arm had you know not really completely fallen off yet, he had a 1.46 whip. And it was almost because anybody else during that time really wasn't looking much better. So like David Bednar was, was a 1.40. I mean, Chase DeYoung, who is looking a lot better now, was a... 1.29 but then you had you know cam view was in there for a point in time which was you know a 30 whip uh heath hembry was in there 2.38 uh whip anthony bonda 1.86 and and you get the idea that basically you know will crow started out like a house of fire but it's it's not that this was just a recent thing that started happening. It's the reason why I start to go to, you know, I, I, you don't build a franchise around a bullpen, you know, was it nice? And, and is it good? And do I think that maybe, you know, Will Crow, if there's more support in there and he gets to play in, in a role that he's more accustomed to, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe people just kind of like figured him out you know, during the middle of the season, after his first 30 innings, that they kind of were able to look and say, you know what, we, we kind of know what you're doing here, Will, and, and you know, maybe maybe you're not really fooling too many of us anymore. So that's just something that was going on there, and that's his next, you know, 25.1 innings. And, and to me, it's just like I, I have to look at the entire picture. I can't just look at, you know, Will Crow was really, really good, and now his arm fell off and he's really, really bad. There, there was a place in the middle there where he also wasn't really that great. But because he had started off so hot, if you looked at his general numbers, and instead of breaking it down like these two months, then these two months, and these two months, and you just said, okay, after these first four months, then, then the numbers will still look kind of pretty good. It's like, well, Will Crow must be still doing good. Well, he really had started to struggle in June and July, but people didn't really notice it until it got to the point where it was, you know, beyond fixing and should pretty much just be shut down at the rest of the season. 
And then just before we get going here, guys, and I do appreciate, you know, all the listeners here. We, we only had, it was me and Chris two weeks ago, a great guest in Spencer Smith last week. Uh, and, and then just me this week. So, you know, as we're getting towards the end of the season, we're just kind of, I guess, filling in as we can as well. But the one thing that's kind of out there is that the Pirates fielding has gotten worse and has been horrible this year. You know, with Joey Cora last year, uh, getting a lot of props from Kevin Newman, you know, the strides that he had made. Um, and people were wondering, you know, if, if Donnie Kelly and, and Mike Rabello and everybody are stretched too thin this year. And this is something where it kind of maybe goes into the people that are, you know, wondering if Anjuar is going to be a Yoshi, but they were the ones that wanted Yoshi. It's the same thing here when people are saying, you know, don't pay attention to batting average as much anymore. And, and I'm also one of those people and, you know, to pay attention to OPS. But if you're saying to not pay attention to batting average as much, you can't use errors and fielding percentage anymore as the measuring stick for whether a defense is good or whether a defense is bad. I mean, you just really can't do that. You can't say, you know, don't pay attention to this one archaic method. And believe me, a batting average has to be at least somewhat good at some point in time. Like to me, I can, once it gets into the two thirties, I can kind of start to stomach it a little bit more. Definitely the OPS over 700, but, but sometimes the OPS might creep over 700 and the batting average isn't to where it doesn't start to make my, you know, stomach turn as much. But when people are saying, Oh yeah, we went from being like, you know, one of the top five defenses in the league to one of the worst. And they're only strictly relying on the airs and the fielding percentage. Well then, yeah, it's going to look like the defense has been terrible. And, if that's the only thing you're following, then once again, it's the same thing as the, the one knee conventional. It's, it's not going to change your mind, but let's just break it down. And this is through, uh, we're recording here. Well, I'm recording here. It's Tuesday afternoon, Chris on the IL. And so as of right now, it, the pirates have 113 errors on the season as compared to 70 errors in 2021. The fielding percentage doesn't drop that much. It's 98 last year, 980 this year. Defensive run saved is actually better. Negative two this year, negative nine last year. The outs above average, also a little bit worse this year. Um, kind of like the fielding percentage, it's a negative 11 outs above average uh, to negative 20 outs above average this year. But the crazy part is, is that if you look at the overall defensive war and that doesn't, that takes beyond everything I just gave you. It takes, you know, range, it takes arm, it takes every single thing, every single category that you could think and breaks it down last year when you know, the Pirates defense was supposedly so great, they were a negative 26.1 defensive war this year a negative 20.7 defensive war. So they're actually getting to more balls. They're, they're making certain errors on plays, and I'm not excusing every single error. There's times I believe errors are being made because they're actually getting to balls they, they wouldn't have gotten to you know, previously. And the crazy part about all of this is, is guess what their ranking was last year, and guess what their ranking is this year. According to defensive war, across the board, they are 27th last year and this year. They weren't a top five defense last year. They're obviously not a top five defense this year, but they're actually kind of improving 
in some categories of the defensive wheel. That's it. I'm heading up to Patrick's Pub and Grill, 1207 Spring Run Road Extension. It's not Wednesday night, but I might grab the mic anyway and sing some karaoke, get some wings, which I usually get on Sundays, put back a couple, and hope that Chris is back next week. <laughs>